0: As long as the sun shines and the grass grows, there shall be friendship between us, and the feet of the Cherokee shall be towards the east. General Andrew Jackson, future President of the United States. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the America of America podcast. As always, I'm Will Milam, and if you remember from last week, we touched on the beginning of the 2006 OU football season, which means that this week we're moving back into Cherokee removal. Uh, From a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember we talked about the uh, quick history basically from the migration of the Cherokees from the Great Lakes region to the southeastern portion of the present United States through the life of Little Carpenter, and now we're going to begin our real Trail of Tears story with the life of Major Ridge. So, our story begins in Hiawassee in 1771 at the Savannah Ford in modern-day North Carolina, where a half-Cherokee, half-Scottish woman was accompanied by Ford midwives and gave birth to a baby boy named Ridge. Ridge was born into a tribe of Cherokees that was struggling militarily and culturally, militarily in defending their land from Europeans and Americans as well as uh, other Indian tribes in the region, and culturally as they had developed a taste for goods brought to them by the local white men. um, In John Eel's book, he he describes a black talking box that made Little Carpenter jump back when he first saw it. Ridge's diet would be the standard diet of late 18th century Cherokees uh, living on the beans, bread, which was made from a mixture of beans and corn, corn itself, and meat where it could be procured. Ridge would go on to see his first war when he was only six years old and he would flee Hiawassee up the river. And it was then when he first met Little Carpenter Cola from a couple weeks ago when he came, Cola came to see Ridge's father. By age 10, Ridge would not only get to see his first true horrors of war, but also the follies of treaties entitled to be treaties of perpetual love, peace, and friendship. And it is at this point when Ridge is 10 years old that Eel goes out of his way and we shall do as we will also do here to describe one of the most famous cultural uh, exports of the Cherokee, especially to American culture, of the stickball game. Uh, The stickball game is the predecessor of the modern American sport, lacrosse. And the stickball game, is played by 18th century Cherokees, would include a game against villages who would play each other from up to 100 to 1,000 players. And the goals would range from 500 yards to several miles apart. And the game would include, if you can imagine, lacrosse played with a stick, but the same kind of goal to get the ball to the other team's goal and to score and to have more goals than the other team. These games, though, would most famously be accompanied by pregame rituals similar to those as the rituals for war. That is to say, the Cherokee takes stickball very seriously. Having covered the most important cultural export, we're now going to jump ahead a couple years to Ridge and what are now known as the Cherokee American Wars. So when Ridge was 17, Chief Old Tassel was shot and killed by a white man named Kirk, and the Cherokee responded by performing a war dance. And Ridge and 20 men from his village joined 200 other Cherokee to go to war against the white men. The first engagement came when American soldiers were picking apples in a Cherokee orchard when they heard the war whoops of the Cherokee. And Ridge, in that engagement, would scalp his first white man as, according to Eel, the Indians would go on to mutilate the bodies of the dead and dying whites in the ambush. Dragon Canoe, who deserves his own episode outright, even though we don't have time in this this bit of history to do so, uh, the Cherokee war chief, Dragon Canoe, would assemble an army and task itself with chasing the US forces and raiding American settlements, which they did quite effectively. Ridge would attack a station held by a man named John Gillespie, and Ridge's men killed all the white men in that fort and or station and took the women and children prisoner. It was here that an internal debate broke out about what to do with the captured women and children. Some of the younger, more bellicose men thought that they should all be executed, reasoning that the Americans would do the same to them. A man named John Watts in Cherokee called Old Tassel, the nephew, or uh, Young Tassel, excuse me, John Watts was the nephew of Old Tassel, the chief whose assassination started the war in the first place, uh, was the first to demand restraint, which apparently saved the lives of the captives. And Though the war campaign was successful for the Cherokees up to this point, an American colonel named John Sevier would mount a surprise attack in which some 145 Cherokees would be killed, and after seven months of fighting, Ridge would return home, a seasoned warrior with more white men's scalps than his father possessed. But Ridge would be returning to a village that was ravaged by smallpox, a disease that the shamans were unable to counter with their magic. And elsewhere, there was more diplomatic trouble brewing, where there was a 16-year-old boy named Joseph Brown traveling with his family to land issued to them by the federal United States government, where they were met by a party of Cherokee and Creek Indians under the flag of truce, but the Indians would take Joseph Brown's family prisoner. They were transported in a boat where the family was being held in the stern of the boat, where a young man, it is unknown if the young man was Creek or Cherokee, grabbed Joseph's arm. This was thought to have been, by historians, an act of jest. But Joseph's father intervened in an act to try to protect his son, with which the young man responded by cutting off Joseph's father's head while his back was turned. The boy was taken to two men afterwards. Uh, One was a white man named Turnbridge, and the other was the Cherokee chief, James Van. Remember the name James Van. James Van's going to be an important name as this story goes on. But back to the story of Joseph Brown. The white man, Turnbridge, took Joseph back to his house, where Joseph learned that his entire party had been killed up to that point. A debate soon went out to the community, uh, believing that if Joseph were to be left alive, he might tell of the massacre and thus risk reprisal. A group of younger men attempted to seize Joseph to execute him, but Turnbridge argued that Joseph was Turnbridge's prisoner, and thus he could not be taken as he was a bit of Turnbridge's property. Joseph sat and listened to Turnbridge's wife ask the men to kill Joseph in the mountains, where the animals could eat his body, rather than kill him in her home where she would have to clean it up. In the meantime, the young Cherokee stripped Joseph of his clothes, and according to John Eel, cast lots for them I can't tell if the young men actually did this or else this is a uh, a reference to the episode in the gospel where the Roman soldiers cast lots for the cloak of Jesus at his crucifixion but after being taken from the house joseph fell on his knees and prayed for his for and prayed to be saved in April seven minutes after several minutes he opened his eyes to see an older Indian smiling at him In the meantime, the local Cherokee chief had returned with Tom Turnbridge, both aghast at the idea of killing a white man within the town and with killing innocents uh, at all. And in the end, it was agreed that Joseph Brown was to become a Cherokee. Remember this story. It is important for later on in our larger story. But now we are going to turn back to Ridge. This time in Ridge's life, post uh, the American Cherokee Wars, was plagued by murders and raids by the Cherokees against the Americans and the Americans against the Cherokees. Young Cherokees got together and formed a warm party, war party, as President Washington and the Virginia Governor Blount ordered arrests of Cherokee leaders. The Cherokee in the creeks uh, would surround a small fort called Cavett's Station In Tennessee, in September of 1793, when the Cherokee and Creek War Party surrounded the fort, unfortunately, they found that there was only one family living there, and a famous fight broke out between the Cherokee Chief Doublehead and James Van, whereby the Chief Doublehead famously hewed a young white boy, although James Van attempted to save him whereby Van called Doublehead a baby killer, and Doublehead ended up swinging his axe at Van. These two incidents strangely point Van in a very uh, almost humanitarian and compassionate light, which is actually not really emblematic of his larger character, especially later on in the story, but I always have found this interesting that it was James Van who who was the leader calling for mercy and tolerance. And it is this act of tolerance by James Van that we're going to use as our segue into talking about the three main characters for the episodes to come in our larger story. The first Cherokee chief we're going to talk about is a man named Charles R. Hicks, who was famous for being one of the first major Cherokee to adopt Western-style farming practices, which meant the implementation of the Western-style of slavery, of chattel slavery, in the ownership of uh, black men and women and children. Uh, Charles Hicks famously saw great strength in Ridge when Ridge was a young man, and Ridge was apparently initially interested in becoming friends with Hicks because Hicks could read English, which was rare amongst the Cherokees at this time. The next chief uh, we're going to talk about is James Van, who we've already introduced. Van was very rich and owned very many slaves, which is going to be not just insanely problematic in and of itself, but it's going to become more problematic for his uh, actions in the future. And Van developed land because Cherokees could use that land where it weren't being used by other Cherokees. Hence, Van was able to develop more land as private property for himself. So he developed what would be the first real Cherokee slave empire, owning more than 100 horses and 400 cattle. Van was also known as a very ruthless man and once gave a man 70 lashes that for by for inch excuse me gave a man who seduced his sister 70 lashes and he hung a white woman by her thumbs when she thought when he thought that she stole from him but he was against doublehead as we remember from the attack on Cabot Station where doublehead ended up swinging his axe at James Van so that because James Van was against Doublehead, that gave him common cause in the future with Ridge, who was also uh, against Doublehead's camp. And then Ridge at this time, uh, if you remember the attack in uh, Cabot Station was in 1793. In 1792, Ridge married a woman named Susanna Catherine Wickett. And also it was at this time in his life when Ridge, still a very young man, began to take politics seriously. Ridge very famously at a Cherokee council meeting proposed an abridgment to the blood law and the council house the blood law being an ancient uh retributive law of where blood is spilled blood must be repaid this uh attempt by Ridge is going to be ominous in retrospect if you keep listening Ridge uh taking the law into his own hair not really but declaring himself as a uh as a chief law enforcement officer declared that he would kill any man that killed another man without cause. And it was after this set of events that we really start to see uh, the, cher- the Americans uh, begin to attempt to educate, in quotation marks, the Cherokee Nation. By the early 1790s, Congress had appropriated money to teach Cherokee women to learn essentially what we would call home economics, spinning, cooking, housekeeping, but in a Western style rather than the traditional Cherokee life. And this was because the Congress wanted the Cherokee men to take up Western style farming, uh, to become more rooted to the land, and to cease the traditional Cherokee way of life. The government even went so far as to bring spinning wheels and cotton seeds to Cherokee towns to try to induce them to do so, and Ridge and Susanna, his new wife, were some of the first to start planting and spinning cotton. And the Cherokee men at first made fun of their wives for spinning cotton until the wives' cotton became far more valuable than the husbands' hides, and thus their wives became the breadwinners of the household, and the Cherokee men stopped making their jokes. Ridge would convince Susanna to make a new life in an undeveloped underdeveloped valley and to turn it into productive farmland. Ridge promised to set up a house with slaves stolen from the Americans, and Ridge and Susanna would resettle in Piedmont area in the Piedmont area near the if you're from Tennessee, i apologize for the butchering I'm about to get of it. Uchigala Creek. Uchilaga. Uchilaga is a much better pronunciation. So soon after, the federal government, who's already come in and supplied the Cherokee with uh, cotton, uh, is going to supply the Cherokee with plows and cotton wheels. And overall, the Cherokee were thought of by the U.S. government as the model Indian because the government thought that they would be the most likely to take these items and develop Western styles of living. And so, of course, which came with the Western styles of living, would come the first Christian missionaries to the Cherokee. Now, of course, Christian missionaries had come to the Cherokee long before, but this was the first concerted effort to convert the Cherokees as a whole. Now, if you live in Oklahoma, especially eastern Oklahoma, you know the major Protestant denominations that are amongst the Cherokee and the other civilized tribes. Uh, Surprising to know that the first Protestant sect to actually come and minister to the Cherokees were the Moravians, uh, who do not have a large presence in Oklahoma anymore, but the First Moravian missionaries showed up and were supposed to come to a council, but they were delayed because the Cherokee chiefs and men were off hunting. The chiefs, when they did meet, believed that the Bible was, as the Christian uh, being the Christian holy book, was a source of secret power with which the white men defeated the Cherokee in war. The Moravians, for their part, maintained the Cherokee that they believed in the radical uh, notion of racial equality between the whites and the Indians. And after a long debate, the Cherokee chiefs allowed the Moravian missionaries into the Cherokee towns. The shamans, of course being the medicine and religious uh, elders of the towns, claimed that the soon that the uptick in stillbirths was caused by the presence of the whites and specifically the Christian missionaries. Now, at this time, where there was an uptick in birth, Ridge would have his first healthy daughter named Nancy, followed by a son named Ridge, both born on his and Susanna's new plantation. Near that plantation, the Moravians would build were supposed to build a school that was close enough for Ridge and Susanna's children to attend, but the Moravians, because they built in German style rather than the Cherokee style were building buildings that took years to build, and when the school was supposed to open, the Moravians claimed that they could only teach four children. The Cherokees eventually gave the Moravians six moons to finish their school or leave, as they were upset not only with the small amounts of children that are going to be taught, but the fact that this building was taking so long to come to completion, especially because the Moravians also maintained that they were only interested in teaching the children of Christians. And the Moravians would even go to James Van and say, hey, our mission is to preach the gospel, not necessarily just to teach. We will teach as a secondary aspect of teaching the gospel. To which Van responded in James Van's fashion of saying, we have no need of the gospel. But also, going poorly for the Moravians, is that they set up German-style farms which were productive and was causing suspicion. And of course, the building is still going slow, so James Van offers in his very James Van way, the use of his slaves to help finish the school, but he would only let his slaves go work on Sunday because he was required to keep his slaves from working on Sunday so they could attend church. So James Van, being the evil and economic man that he was, used those days to which to donate them to go build the Moravian school. So, and the Moravians, for their part, being opposed to slavery on religious grounds, paid those slaves fifty cents a day. James Van, of course, was fine with this agreement, and apparently the Cherokee were ev- were preparing to evict the Moravians until the Presbyterian Gideon Blackburn of Tennessee showed up and promised three to four schoolmasters and free food and clothing for students, and most importantly, most. Fortunately for the Cherokees, and most importantly, Gideon Blackburn, refu- uh, Gideon Blackburn uh, agreed not to preach the gospel as a means of uh, building the school. Rat writes here, rather uh, cleverly, I would say that the chiefs were now not anti-white, simply just anti-German and probably pro-Scots-Presbyterian. And it is at this point, at the conclusion of the Cherokee American Wars and the real introduction of American Western style ways of living into the Cherokee culture, that we are going to leave this first episode of our multi parter. Um, obviously, we are not getting super deep into the treaties uh, that's going to happen in the first next couple of weeks, but I do think that it's important to note here that we have introduced, uh, we have introduced Charles Hicks, James Van, and Ridge all who are going to play important parts as the weeks go on. I am recording this uh, at this point, August 8th in the evening. I apologize for getting this episode out a day late. I hope you will forgive me. It was just a uh, very difficult schedule this weekend, but I'm glad to have gotten this out when I will. Uh, As always, I'm available for comment, correction, or request by my social medias, which are all listed under Will or William Milam and the uh and the email attached to this podcast and with that uh we thank you i thank you so much for listening and i hope you're looking forward to next week's uh we're reverting back to ou football we're going to talk about the 2006 ou oregon game which is also going to be super interesting i hope that there's some crossover between people who find both these subjects interesting because i sure do and with that I'm Will Milam, and I thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week. Good night.